Welcome back to a brand new series of Not Too Busy to Write, the podcast about writing amongst life's many other demands. I took a longer break than usual between series this time to finish writing my next book, but I am thrilled to be back with an incredible list of authors this season. Today, I'm speaking to Marshall Farrell about her debut book, Uprooting, which was published in July. Uprooting tells the story of Marshall's experience of finding home in an English country garden. Born in Trinidad, Marshall first came to England to study medicine at Oxford. She went on to specialise in psychiatry and worked as a medical psychotherapist in the NHS. Uprooting is set over the course of 2020 in the midst of the pandemic and global racial protests and examines what it means to feel truly grounded and at home. It is great to be back in your ears. I can't wait to share more conversations with you over the coming months. Enjoy the episode. Marshall, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Let's dive straight into uprooting. It's set over the course of a year, your first year in your country garden after spending 20 odd years in urban Oxford and then a childhood in Trinidad. And I guess the first thing I wanted to ask about is when when did you know that that this was going to be that year, this really tumultuous, intense year was going to be the right framework? to um to explore your ideas about identity and garden gosh <laughs> um that really emerged quite organically i suppose through the writing of it when i first started realizing that i was writing a book <laughs> um and you know kind of realized that that's what this writing was shaping up into initially I didn't really want it to be a chronological story and I didn't necessarily want it to be my story um which is really bizarre because so much of my you know all of my writing has been always deeply rooted in the personal you know I've I've always written that way so it is it's a bit mad (laughs) that I thought that I that I wouldn't do that but um yeah, initially I had an idea that it would be these kind of um, loosely connected essays that kind of explored the you know all the themes that are that are in the book. Mm. Um, but it was really as I as I wrote my way into it. Actually, it was sort of as I wrote my way into it that it became really clear that actually there was a chronology here, and I needed to respect that. Um, and that and that it had to be our first year of living here mm. <laughs> um because you know a lot of the ideas it was there was definitely there is definitely some artistic license in that because you know there's a way in which I talk about having season kind of ideas and epiphanies and realizations in the book and they don't necessarily of course all just happen in that year you know this has been it's a combination, of, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It's been a life's work, really, you know, the result of many years of thinking about these things. But there was something about the events of that year, the intensity of that year, I think really the emotional intensity of that year. Yeah. That just allowed really such an ideal kind of structure for hanging a lot of those themes on that it seemed like it would be a 
a waste <laughs> to yeah. not use it. Yeah. Yeah, I just think it's so interesting because I think one of the the challenges, one of the huge challenges of memoir that particularly memoir that brings you very close to the present day mm. is around well, how do I structure it? Where do I where do I end? Um, when mm. when you are talking about themes that are lifelong learnings, to to where to begin and where to end is often a challenge that writers face. But like you said, you know, just for context for those who haven't read the book yet, it that it's set in 2020, which for for both obviously global reasons, but also very personal reasons, it's a very very challenging year. You know, not you know not in small part due to the fact you had just moved and relocated, stopped yes. working as a doctor your husband um a cardiologist um yeah. which with all of the implications that means for 2020 um and then of course then the murder of George Floyd and the kind of the reckoning that's happening very publicly in the media um about um blackness and our attitudes towards blackness um mm-hmm. so yes I can see that that it's sort of of the variety of things that you touch on in the book so beautifully interlinked um it works. It works really, really well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you say about you know where to end. <laughs> yeah, um, that was a that was a definite struggle, and it's I think in a way it's a struggle for the reader as well because I've noticed in a few of the events that I've done, I've been really lucky to be going around and um, doing lots of talks and chatting to lots of people who are by now having the chance to have actually read the book. Mm. I sometimes get this kind of slightly anxious feeling question about like, so are you okay now? Do you feel at home and and rooted and as if you belong now, you know, as in like, please reassure us that it's all okay and that you're happy and settled and that, you know, this black woman in her country garden feels okay in England. It's all been resolved, you know. And I understand where they're coming from. And also it does kind of make me chuckle to myself because I wish life were that simple and that straightforward and that easy, you know, for now, this is our home safely, but life continues. And Mm. um, if anything, the year of 2020 taught me, it was that who knows what situation we're going to be in next year. Um, So hanging my hat too firmly on the fact that this is all okay and this is it and this is going to be happily ever after seems a bit mad in the context of um, what I've kind of written and thought about in the book. Um, So yeah, passing out and ending was a tricky one because I did in the end bring it quite close to the present day, sort of Mm. cheated slightly at the the end um, in the epilogue. But I hoped very much to convey that sense of time carrying on, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a life and I'm still living. There, there isn't an end point to it. Um, yeah. And what else did you ask me? <laughs> well, that's really interesting what you're saying, because um, I've said something similar, actually, about writing about about unpaid care. Some people mm. have sort of said to me, oh, you must be fully reconciled with all of your the challenges that you face as an unpaid care <laughs> because I've written about it. And I was like, yeah, writing a book doesn't necessarily solve everything. I mean, it's a really fantastic way to grapple with everything and Absolutely. to confront everything. But unfortunately, it doesn't necessarily mean everything is completely tidy at the end. But it's interesting because I feel like a lot of what I felt from your book was a 
it was a confrontation. Like it was a, mm. it was a, it was a, it was an opening up and a seeing and a, an acknowledging. Um, and actually, that was one of the questions I had. Actually, that we can, I may we'll just ask this right now. Is is what has that been like? Because I know you have been able to do lots of events, which is really wonderful. And not all of them have been in completely literary spaces. Some of them have been mm. in more gardening spaces. And you know, gardening in this country has been a very white space. And so I really wanted to also ask about that experience of going into these kind of traditionally very white spaces and having these conversations about colonialism and race in the context of gardens. And and what has that experience been like? For the most part, it's been amazing and amazingly positive. And I've been really taken actually with how the book and my ideas have been received. Um, it's been really wonderful. It's interesting. I've talked to what feels like quite a diverse range of audiences, actually. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned gardening spaces because I did an event at the Garden Museum in London, and that was probably the youngest and the most diverse audience that I've spoken ah, to. Interesting. Yeah, I was possibly the oldest person in the room. <laughs> Really? Okay, that's that is very surprising. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that was a really that made me just feel so full of hope for the future yeah. of horticulture. I've got to say, all these young radical people um thinking in a totally new way about relationships with gardens and the earth. That was delightful. Um and some of the other events that I've done have felt like they've been a bit of a haven for people who have been struggling with their own sense of belonging in one way or another, mm-hmm. particularly if they're of some kind of mixed ethnic background, actually. And yeah. they've seen the event, heard about the book and come along um, and came and had a chat afterwards. And, you know, that felt really kind of important for them to kind of see themselves in a way that I think they rarely feel seen and kind of spoken about um, and their experience is kind of thought about so kind of publicly. So mostly it's been wonderful. Um, I had, I would say I've only had one experience so far where I found myself just speaking a lot about the garden <laughs> itself. <laughs> I'm kind of avoiding some of the more sort of painful topics in the book and wondering kind of beating myself up a bit for it afterwards thinking why did I do that like mm-hmm. what what why did I do that that wasn't my best performance because I didn't talk about the most meaningful bits of the book and why did I do that and then afterwards kind of hearing that a different author at the same event um who was also talking about a book about colonialism and empire was heckled <laughs> by the audience so I was like, ah, oh, my spidey senses were activated and realized that this might not be the most um, receptive space to some of the things that I want to talk about. That, that's so interesting. That, But I think it's true from, from kind of, I guess, live events I've been to both participating but also speaking at. Um, it is true that you can sometimes get a feel, a feel, for what's going to land and what's going to be maybe not worth going there in terms of like protecting yourself and Mm. your ideas a little bit um because actually you know some of these ideas are are quite challenging for some people aren't they especially around colonialism Uh, yeah they are and you know that was deliberate I did write the book as a confrontation um 
you know, I sort of wrote it with myself looking at these issues um, and reckoning with them from lots of different angles and trying very hard not to fall into kind of them and us because, of course, the racial binary between black and white is a false construct. There is no them and us. <laughs> so, you know, trying trying very hard not to let myself slip into that kind of easy place um, although there are spaces in the book where I occupy it, and I'm particularly when I'm quite enraged. But really challenging myself to look at also the ways in which I've participated in this system. Um, and through doing that, I'm hoping very much to invite the reader who, you know, I know who tends to read memoirs about nature. It's mostly white middle class people. Um, hoping to invite the reader to do that themselves mm. you know that, that through reading me going through this journey and sitting with that kind of painful confrontation that it allows some kind of space to open up in their mind that they might be able to do that as well rather than just just the denial and the repression <laughs> and the you know ignoring and the brushing over that we do so well mm. in England like it's yeah. a real strong part of the English psyche um sometimes a strength but a lot of the times problematic um so so yes it is definitely a confrontation it's definitely uncomfortable to read in parts and that was deliberate and I kind of hope that I hold the reader enough that they can sit with that discomfort and kind of bear it um and bear to bear to do some some thinking themselves um and I guess I only you know you only have the feedback that you receive to go on um and people have sent me some really lovely messages about re the experience of reading the book so yeah I'm hoping that that's the experience that most readers are having but yeah well, you also you write a lot about colonialism and and you write really beautifully at one point about about coming to this idea that of course you know Trinidad, which is, you know, where you spent your childhood, and how um, how homesick you had often felt when you first arrived, um, and the garden and plants are such a um, strong part of 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 um, what you where you feel at home. Mm. Um, but that coming to the conclusion that actually, you know, indigenous ancestors to Trinidad would not have actually recognised the gardens of your youth because mm. the landscape had been changed by colonialism and that the ancestors on the land you're on now in Somerset would also mm. not recognise the land as it is now. And I thought that was so beautiful, this idea that there is no land that's not been changed by colonialism. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're in England or Trinidad or Australia where I come from, land has changed because of it. I thought that was such a beautiful coming together of all the ideas in the book. Um, and I guess that's what I mean about the opening up of the conversation that mm. it feels like the book does. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose those were the kind of links that I was drawing between the gardens. You know, that was, I landed here in this kind of English country garden, having never had a garden in England before. 
and was just so struck by the sense of familiarity. That was the thing that really surprised me and kind of really took me aback. <laughs> and I was just like, why does this place feel so familiar to me, even though it should be so different and so strange? Um, and it was that realization, actually, that the same deeply profound forces that have shaped the lives of people have also shaped the land, continue to shape the land as they continue to, as it continues to shape our lives. And that's why there was this sense of recognizing something because it was the same, you know, um, this, you know, the same terraforming forces <laughs> had shaped this garden as had shaped my childhood ones. Um, so yeah, we're, we are really all in it together um you know this is something that has touched much of the world um and continues to and you know would that we could shake it <laughs> shake it off yeah there was there was so much in that experience you talk about that i recognized you know coming also from a colonial country um and i have thought a lot over the years about how my own childhood garden which was designed by an English landscape gardener um, and was very a, very much a hybrid English Australian space. Mm. Um, that, that garden specifically is part of the reason I feel a level of comfort here in this country because mm. I don't know why particularly the gardens, but they make me, I feel connected to gardens here in a way um, that I wonder if I would if I'd grown up somewhere very different to where I did. I don't know. It's something that's been rolling around in my mind quite a lot lately. Um, something yeah. about the connectedness of, of plants in general. Um, that's and really fact, interesting. I mean, I think I think my grandmother's roses <laughs> have, mm. have a lot to um, have a lot to answer for. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly of, that. Yeah, and you also you write about this experience of of um, when you were a new mother of of going out and you couldn't be mothered. Your mother was very far away and you go out and you start buying yourself houseplants as a way of, of sort of bringing your mother into your home. And I wonder if, if that is part of sometimes what I feel when I'm in the garden as well, that, that somehow plants help us connect with a part of our childhood, our earlier childhoods. Oh, I think so hugely. Yes. I think you know, we kind of use the trope of Mother Earth and um, oh, it's very mixed and messy, as is the whole idea of, of mother, motherhood, certainly quite problematic. But mothering, in, if you're thinking of an act of nurturing and caring, tending, I think that relationship runs for the same way between us and plants as it does between you know one another us with other human beings um as with us and animals you know some people feel it very strongly in terms of relationships with with animals that they've kind of grown up with and 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 had um you know we've co-evolved with plants for a really long time it's only in very recent history that we have many of us have stopped having a kind of deep and meaningful relationship with them but i think you know in evolutionary time i think time is a bit seems probably looks a bit slower to plants than it does to us you know i think we kind of speed through lives um and you know they move at a pace that is a little bit 
a little bit slower than ours, I think. And so I don't think they've lost that connection. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I don't think they've given up on a relationship with uh, these messy humans. so I think that I think that relationship is there and I think that it's real and you know it was really striking me as I was kind of spending time in the garden and trying to understand why on earth it felt as though I was having a relationship with this place and why did it feel that it was reciprocal why did it feel so much as though this place was tending to me as I was tending to it and you know it didn't when I kind of finally joined the dots about the work I do as a therapist and how much of the communication um, that I pay attention to in my work is non-verbal, you know, very little of it is verbal, more than 90% is non-verbal. I suddenly realized, well, of course, of course, we must be able to communicate with other creatures, species, you know, with with other forces in this kind of world that we live in to understand it and to be able to make our way in it and to be a and to survive and be a successful species, you know, ways of reading where water will be, ways of, of reading what the weather's going to be like, ways of reading where would be a good place to settle, you know, all of that would have come from largely unconscious ways of reading the landscape around us i.e communication with the landscape around us you know another another way of putting it um so yes i think i think plants do hold that actually um you know i'm sort of sat here and i can see some of my house plants on the screen behind me on the zoom and these are ones that have come from that mad interlude of buying all those plants when i had a baby and many of them have been so neglected, particularly since we've moved here and I have like an outside garden to look after. And they cling on and they keep going. And I really think that it's just, they want to stay alive with me. <laughs> I can't think of any other reason why they would carry on given the bad, bad treatment that they that they get. Um, so yeah, I think I think the plants do wants to be in relationship with us and I think that's a beautiful thing and a really hopeful thing actually it's the thing I cling to when I feel most despairing about the climate crisis yeah well I was lucky enough to come and and um, speak to you in your garden a little while ago Um, and it's it's such an incredibly beautiful space Um, but you said something when we had that conversation that I thought was really fascinating you mentioned um, that in becoming a doctor, there is a there is often a breaking down of the self and a rebuilding and a doctor identity. Mm. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you about that. When you came to your your garden, your new space, you took time away for the first time from being a practicing doctor. And um, and I wondered if, in a way, that was part of the thing that allowed room for a writer and a gardener identity as well, alongside your doctor identity. Um, yes, I think absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's quite an intensive role to occupy, um, being a doctor, in, intensive in all sorts of ways. And I think some, there are people who manage it, who manage to have a bit more balance between that, uh, that part of themselves and other parts of themselves. 
but I know I'm not alone in in how I've kind of struggled with it, the kind of all-consuming nature of it. And the way that really the systems that we work in play on the martyr instinct of many people who come into the health professions and particularly the medical fields. Like, the, you know, that gets, that gets, um, oh, what's the word that I'm thinking of? Exploited. Yeah. <laughs> that instinct of ours absolutely gets exploited in the systems. Um, <clears throat> so to break away from it is quite a challenging and a radical thing. It wasn't actually the first time I did it. I had six months off working, um, kind of in between apply when I was, I had done my general special, my kind of general psychiatry training, and I was applying for the subspecialty work. And in the first round of job applications, I failed to get a job. I didn't get a job. And um, that's not that uncommon. And most people at that point in time would just take up any temporary paid um, doctor job that they can kind of find nearby and make do with that while they kind of apply for the next round. But I actually took a full break um and went and volunteered in a therapeutic community for a few days a week but because it was voluntary you know I had a very different relationship to the work than when I was you know kind of felt a bit chained to the kind of medical career treadmill you know it felt it felt much more you know it was it was freely chosen it was what I wanted to spend my time doing and I had this free time that I'd kind of suddenly never had I'd never been part-time before mm. um I took up sewing in that break actually oh, really? <laughs> um, I yeah it was I and it felt so creative mm. um to have a kind of ho- a creative hobby outlet was just a sort of really new thing well certainly new since school days really um that I'd had the time and space to do that so at this break I'd had a bit of a mini taste of it before and I you know when we kind of moved here I was intending it just to be a sort of short break probably about six months like that like that previous one but of course um COVID happened (laughs) circumstances happened and if that that felt really tricky when I realized that actually the world was changing around me and my plans were meaningless mm-hmm. um, and that who knows how long I might now find myself um, at home. It was a painful reckoning, but I think you're, I think, yes, you're right. That's, is what allowed the space for me to begin to write in a much more serious and dedicated way than I had ever done before. Because I have written off and on mm. all of my life, actually, but I've never taken it seriously, never t- never thought of myself as a writer at all, You know, never gave myself that identity, um, not even as a hobbyist, you know, um, never applied those words to myself. And so... I think it was definitely that space that allowed, um, because I did, I would just, I would sit down every morning with my laptop and be like, I'm writing. <laughs> Don't bother me. <laughs> Nobody bother mummy for a bit. I'm writing. And I don't, you know, that was, that was wholly new. <laughs> I had never done that before. Um, and there, you know, there was absolutely no, 
idea of something that would come from it. What was really lovely, actually, was when it arrived at a point that it was quite clear that I was writing a book and that there was this narrative and this chronology that was being written. Um, my husband, even though there was no end game, you know, there was no there was no clear end in sight for this project of mine. <laughs> um, he sort of read some of the first daily bits and said, you have to write this. You've got to finish writing this. If it's just, even if, you know, for us, for, for our family, you must, you, this is, this just feels like something that you've got to do. Um, and so he was supportive of me taking my, I used to do it in the mornings. I would sort of wake up in the mornings and go and sit looking out over the garden and write for an hour or two. Um, before having to kind of get on with with the rest of the day, but yes, it 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 must be the 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 space that was opened up by the turbulent change of that mm-hmm. year that allowed, um, you know, it caused all kind of rifts. But I guess the thing about a rift is that you know things are torn apart and some space opens up between it. Um, yeah, which allowed a new identity to kind of emerge into that space. Um, which I hadn't realized that I'd been holding or yeah. even really wanting to hold. It's so interesting because it, it um, the pandem- pandemic did something very similar for me, although I had already written my first book by the time it started. It came out during that first lockdown. But it was the time 2020 for- itself that it became clear that actually there was for our family there was no going back to the way things were before for a variety of reasons um and that I had to be available I had to be at home and I had to give up most of my work as a photographer um and like you say it's painful it's painful to let go of an identity that you um that has been your kind of adulthood identity um mm-hmm. I'm sure for you as a doctor even more encompassing than for me as a photographer but um but yeah it can be painful and yet that rift as you say can can allow space for something else um which is really can be really exciting as well um you you write about this idea of the land requiring softness of you and a vulnerability and um and how extremely challenging that is for you when you've had to be quite hard against a lot of things in the world. And I wonder if, do you see writing in a similar way? Have you had to lean into that vulnerability in a similar way to leaning into the garden? Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't think I can write very well from a place that's hardened off, actually. Um, if I try, what I write is rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> so I so I do have to uh sort of open my heart and kind of write from a place that feels quite vulnerable um for what I write to then feel kind of meaningful. And I suppose I think of it in that I'm always trying to have my heart touch the heart of the reader. Um which is a vulnerable act, you know. It's it even if if you're going to think of it in terms of like medical biological terms you know I'm kind of really letting letting the reader in um but I suppose also kind of hoping to be let in um yeah. and yes just you know the idea of belonging 
to a place, it kind of, you know, it sort of made me realize that actually I had to allow myself to belong as much as anything else. Um, and that that part, <laughs> that part was the, was the vulnerable part actually. Um, because if I kept myself protected and safe, um, that actually I couldn't ever fully, I couldn't ever fully be held really, um, by, by another and to be held by someone else is to really kind of soften into, into them. Um, so yes, that was, yeah, the whole experience of writing the book was quite vulnerable and there were a lot of tears shed. <laughs> I did, I did sort of face, not so much later draft, but definitely face draft. Um, a lot of that writing was done while just sort of crying, actually. Um, uh, and not even necessarily from a place of sadness. I think just from a place of, of kind of heart openness, mm, um, of release. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, like there's, there's so much, there's so much in the world. You know that we we're we're a species who's constantly trying to connect. We're constantly trying to connect with with one another. Um, but so much of it, I think, ends up being a kind of noise because we are doing it from a place where we are hardened off ourselves. Um, and I was really keen not to put anything. I didn't want to put something into the world that was just noise <laughs> I was just kind of adding to adding to the noise of the world um and so in order to do that I really felt that I had to allow myself to be quite vulnerable actually for it to for it to have meaning but you know vulnerability is not a bad thing we get really scared of it um we see it as a weakness <laughs> when actually I think it's our greatest strength um because it is the thing that allows us to truly connect um, to one another, you know, if you and not just to one another, like to be in a relationship with the garden in a way that feels reciprocal, I've got to be vulnerable with this space. I've got to be able to listen to what it needs and to be able to take in what it needs. I can't just be in a position of domineering and imposing my will of what I think this garden must look like you know that that's coming from a quite hardened off place if I take that approach with the garden and you know being human there are definitely moments when I go out there in that space <laughs> you know when I for whatever reason I'm feeling a bit more um armored up and I'm just like right today we're going to rip all the weeds out of out of this area um and but I will bend to my will. And you will bend to my all of you will you will you shall go, which is obviously <laughs> such a demented idea. <laughs> that will never happen. <laughs> and then I do catch myself in that place and I have a laugh. And then I, you know, then it, I kind of let myself wonder, well, what am I feeling so armored up against? <laughs> like, why have I why have I felt the need to come out here in this spirit today? What's 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 brought that up what's brought the walls up today um oh, but you know i think softness softness 
it's just it's just so much easier <laughs> it, it's 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 softness and it's ease and you know with that kind of comes joy and pleasure you know all those feelings that we that we that we claim that we want although actually we talk a lot about happiness which is an interesting one i haven't thought about um i mean happiness is lovely but you know it's not got the same depth i think to sort of joy and bliss and you know transcendence and you know all wonder some of these other feelings that kind of really touch your heart um and so you've got to be in a vulnerable place in order to be able to experience all of those feelings so actually you know vulnerability opens us up to delight <laughs> as well we can't we, we can't experience as much of it if we are defended and hardened off yeah and all the most beautiful writing that we as readers connect with mm. um, as well it comes from that place of softness doesn't it where absolutely you can't experience those emotions from the writer through their writing unless unless you know unless they allow themselves to be soft and and that you know is painful as a writer it can be a painful process but yeah absolutely I mean you know it's like comparing an academic paper mm. um and I've done my share of academic writing and my work to a you know an act of creation um yeah. you, I've never felt touched <laughs> or moved it's, um, <laughs> it's so interesting isn't it I've worked with a few as a as a book coach I've worked with a few people that come from academia and actually what they want to do is is lean into something um not academic and actually that's that's something that's been so interesting for me you know I I don't have a, a academic background particularly mm. but this idea that you know they tell me that they're like not allowed to have opinions they're not really mm. just what they think and feel and all these things and I'm like oh we're basically doing all the opposite things yeah <laughs> yeah it's like and that's and that is vulnerable you know allowing allowing others to see what your own thoughts are your own feelings um it's so much more um vulnerable than um than perfectly oh. compiled research Absolutely. And I mean, it's one of the delusions, actually, of academia and academic writing, the idea that you can remove yourself mm. from the research and the writing because you can't. Yeah, we can't <laughs> unknow our own perspective, can we? Exactly, exactly. Um, and actually, I think quite possibly a lot of research will be enriched <laughs> if the position of knowing yourself and and owning that part of your contribution to the work was sort of more explicitly thought about and talked about rather than this kind of weird idea that you could be I don't know a bot behind a screen or something very strange isn't um, it this idea yeah. that yeah you don't come from somewhere yeah yeah um I wanted to ask you um about the Nan Shepherd Prize um you won that prize in 2021. Um, tell me about how that came about. And also I want to talk about the, the impact that's had on, on the on the book as well. Gosh, yes. Um, well, that was a mind-blowing moment yes. <laughs> of my life. Or I suppose series of moments, really. Um, yeah, at that point that it came across my radar, I had a book proposal. I'd been working on it. I'd shaped it. And I'd written, oh, I don't know, maybe 
a, more than a quarter, maybe about a third of the book itself. Um, as in a, a coherent narrative of a book rather than just sort of bits of writing that I'd been kind of, um, yeah, kind of pulls together a kind of coherent narrative of, of a book, about a third of it by that point. And I had an agent, the amazing Julia Silk, who I think you've had. Yes, and she is also my agent, which yeah, I didn't realize at <laughs> I first didn't until um, until I I had wanted to contact you about about interviewing for something else, and I suddenly realized that we shared an agent. <laughs> Sent her an email. Oh my goodness! <laughs> you will be amazing, Julia. Um, and we were kind of at the point of thinking about putting it out for submission, um, which just seemed wild to me. And I was sure that I would just be like rounds of rejection and that, you know, I was just going to carry on finishing writing the book for us, you know, as a kind of personal project. Didn't really think this was actually going to sell, you know. And I can't actually remember how I came across the Nan Shepherd Prize because it was me. I remember bringing it to Julia's attention and being like, oh, what about this? This looks, I mean, my book seems to fit the criteria for this perfectly. And we, I have a proposal. Um, and I don't think I would win, but you know, gosh, what an amazing opportunity this, this looks like. And she was like, yeah, go for it. And I thought, really? Wow. Okay. If Julia thinks that I could go for it, then, then I will. And we have subsequently had conversations where she was like, it took me a while to realize that I was talking from the point of view of absolutely expecting that you would be in with a really high chance of winning this prize, <laughs> not realizing that you didn't realize at all that you stood any chance of, of winning this prize. Um, and it was really interesting because I came across it and it had, I can't, you know, whatever the submission deadline was. And at the same sort of time, I got a phone call from the... Uh, mental health trust in Bath, um, which is a town near where I live. And I had contacted them when I was moving nearby um, because that was my plan at that point in time was to, you know, carry on being a medical psychotherapist. And I was aware that they didn't have a medical psychotherapist in Bath, but that they had at some point previously and all of the usual NHS story, cuts, 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 that post had been lost. And I just sort of thought, you know, it's worth a try. I'll let them know I'm in the area in case they ever do. <laughs> things the way, things go in circles in the NHS, you know, in case things circle back to somebody wanting to appoint a medical psychotherapist, that they know that I'm, that there's somebody trained in the area. And they rang me up and said that they were creating a post um, and invited me to come along and meet people and chat and apply for it. Um, and in a... Uh, I mean, in a way, I suppose it wasn't the the, the hardest decision. I looked at the job um, spec and it was almost identical to the job that I had been doing when I left, which <clears throat> I had pretty much burnt out of. <laughs> it was, it, you know, it was very under-resourced. Um, and I thought, oh, I don't think I want to go back to that, um, you know. I don't that I don't think that's what I quite want to go back to. But the thing was that the closing deadline for the application for the consultant job and the closing deadline for the application for the Nan Shepherd Prize were the same day. Mm. 
And I had this real sense of like the universe wow. offering me a crossroads, you know, being like, here's a choice. Yeah. <laughs> Choose one pathway. Um, and in the end, I kind of knew I only had the capacity to apply for one. Um, I applied for the Nan Shepherd Prize. And had my mind blown every time I got one of the lovely emails from the organizers that I had was face long listed and then shortlisted. And then, you know, the day that I won it, I just, yeah, <laughs> it took a long time to believe that actually. Um, I think I'm only just, I think I've only just arrived at the point of believing that this has actually happened now that the book is here and it's in bookshops and people are reading it. You know, I think now I finally believe <laughs> that I actually won the Nan Shepherd Prize. And it's been completely life-changing, actually. Um, you know, it has not eradicated my identity as a psychotherapist. And actually, I think more and more I feel a pull to go back to doing some clinical work. And I'm currently kind of thinking that in the new year, when all the kind of speaking engagements have kind of calmed down a bit, um, sort of looking at getting getting into that. Um in a in a kind of more I mean I do a tiny bit at the minute um but nothing not, I don't have my own patient list I don't have my own patients and getting back into that would I think be a real privilege and a joy um but it has opened up this whole new identity um mm -hmm. of being a writer and a new audience for my ideas really which yeah. I feel very lucky to have because god bless my husband I remember asking him what he thought of my book and he was like oh it's nice it's good and I was like that's very non-committal damn me with faint <laughs> praise why don't you and he sort of said well the thing is you've been telling me these ideas and kind of talking about these links and some of the kind of themes for years <laughs> so so you know I've heard I've heard some of your arguments before, Marcel. <laughs> um, and it does feel I do feel very lucky to now not just be kind of shouting them at him, <laughs> but to kind of have um be invited to speak to other people about mm. some of these kinds of thoughts and ideas. Um and hopefully shape other people's thoughts and ideas and way of, ways of kind of seeing and thinking about the world um which I guess is the whole point of writing something isn't it that's yeah. I guess that's what you're always trying to do really. sharing ideas sharing perspective I um I really think that as well like your what you bring to your work um and your therapeutic background adds such an incredible layer to everything that you're looking at um in terms of like human relationships and human relationships with the landscape um mm. and it just adds such an incredible dimension to to nature writing to come from that what is you know a very human based mm. um background <laughs> but yeah. to be able to use that all of that background to explore relationship with landscape is um it just is really um it's really incredible it's such a beautiful beautiful book um i would urge all the listeners to read it immediately um and um and yes yeah, it's, it's 
been such a pleasure to to talk with you about it. Um, I hope that you are continuing to write, even though you're doing lots of other things, speaking and thinking more about therapeutic spaces again. I am, yes. I started a new piece this morning. Um, yeah, an essay and an upcoming anthology. So yeah, I am still writing, Excellent. which which feels good. <laughs> good. Well, um, thank you so much for speaking with me today about uprooting. It has been such a pleasure to dive into all of the ideas here. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Penny. It's been such a joy. 